Welcome to season 2 episode 3 of the Wings podcast. Today we have with us a very special guest, Miss Simran Rawat. Simran is currently pursuing her undergraduate degree in journalism from Lady Shri Ram College. She is the co-founder of a Cry for Help Foundation, which is a charitable trust working in the area of adolescent mental and sexual health. She is specially passionate about topics such as feminism, sexual health and consent and she has also given a TED talk on the same at the age of only 18 years. Her sexual health workshops are highly sought after by students as they are relatable, honest and very informative. She has received coverage for her social work in several publications like The Times of India, Femina and Hindustan Times. Let's get started with this episode. We really want to know Simran better. What's her story and what has driven her to do so much work at such a young age? mentorship transformed your own life uh, i think that everything that i've done with the cry for help has um fundamentally changed me just to be able to see that i'm making a difference in somebody's life has impacted me in a big way and learning from people that have been in this industry for so long learning from a music leader it has changed the way i view the world and it has taught me skills it made me more professional then i think i would have otherwise been at my age like i learned how to do a lot of things right um which i otherwise wouldn't have learned like doing taxes or reading legal documents or even just the way you're supposed to use language or how you format certain things and how at a professional level mm-hmm. it would be expected to be even though we are just two children running an NGO which still helps to the same standards that everybody else is right learning from my mentors and even learning from my kids. I've learned so much from my kids over the years. There's so many preconceived notions that have gone away the longer that I've worked with those children. I've learned about different kinds of lifestyles and the different backgrounds that people come from and it's given me a lot of perspective and it's also given me a lot of like gratitude in my life for the things that I have and for my growth overall. Okay, that's quite a positive transformation. Um, so, I think it would be great if we could talk about, um, right, related to sexual assault awareness and specifically how Gen Z perceived it and the issues we face currently. So, one thing I observed when I saw around myself was that the way consent operates in most relationships is like we believe that non-verbal cues are enough because there's sort of understanding that exists between two people and as relationship progresses uh, and when people get intimate they think that they can now understand you know better and it's okay to not always ask for explicit consent since it's awkward it's considered uncomfortable as well so and this is also 
true somewhere influenced by um, i think movies and cinema how it shows that how the relationship operates and how people also have their expectations so how do you think we can normalize normalize this idea of asking explicit consent in relationships especially um, like among our generation we have seen around always you know better to ask and pick up the uncomfortable conversation even if it is than to just err on the wrong side and assume you know consent and make other person feel violated that's how it's supposed to be 
still keep this movement alive where people are not enough hesitant to come up with the uh, the uncomfortable experiences they had or with sexual assault yeah with their own sexual assault experiences because usually they are still uh, you know stigmatized or you know humiliated in that extent so how do we keep this movement alive so i think that uh, we should in the context of the past for the first time harassers and abusers were called out on such a large scale. And I think that it gave a lot of people courage to speak up about their own experiences because they realized that the tide was turning a little bit. But now, for the first time in a long time, there were actually going to be people who had gone unpunished for so long, right? Like, this year, Harvey Weinstein went to date. One of the only few good things to happen in 2020 was that man came to date. Right. So, for the first time, all like seeing people from the LG step down and all of these big actors or producers and people in positions of power for the first time, they had to face the consequences of their actions. So, I think in that, in that sense, we do have empowered a lot, lot more women to feel that, yes, if this come now at this juncture, they might get some amount of justice for what happened to them. And I think that's the significant. And when it comes to alive, I think that the most important thing is to embed these things in public consciousness. That for a bad man to, to be remembered as a bad man is really, really important, right? Because public memory tends to be short. Me too has happened a couple of years ago and there are still people coming up with their stories, but we need to ensure that the movement doesn't die out in the sense that the people that have already been called out, it should not be okay for them to resurface a couple of years from now and for everything to be normal. Right? Like, for example, I was reading up recently about how mm-hmm. Sanjay Bhai just asked him on Instagram again. And he was complicit in an incident of covering up something related to somebody who has been sexually harassing women. Right? And now he's like, it's okay for him to come up and talk about all of these things again. And I think that we all need to have longer memories and we need to make sure that the recommendations are long lasting so that other women or other people, in fact, because men get assaulted as well as can't get assaulted, you know, why may they get assaulted? Because there is space for these people to talk about their things and for them to have this confidence that yes, we're not going to forget and yes, we're not going to forgive, you know, and that's the main thing that we can keep doing, that we actually boycott these people that have been called out. Right? Like, for instance, I would personally never watch Salman Khan movie after knowing how he behaved towards his mother. I was just the fact that I know that he ran over people and got away with his life. So I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and not actually support anything that he does. Because that's the only power that we as consumers and as citizens actually have, right? We can talk about it and we can choose not to support people or artists that are known to be abusers. Like, for example, this clown, right? Everybody knows how to avoid the Zahana. 
one thing that comes up when we talk about hashtag me to movement was that a lot of cases in general are cases where you accuse someone but they never get proved in a court of law and technically they say that uh, innocent until proven guilty so and a lot of people just come up with um, that what if they are false cases or what if they are bad relationships where it just becomes uh, she said this and he said this and the person denying etc etc why do you think we need to believe uh, people who come out with their stories and why do you think it's so important to support them yeah why do you think we need to believe this woman or anybody in fact who comes out with their story and the hashtag me too i think um about the I would believe of the person 
considered like secondary citizens, right? It's not their life is not as important as a man's life. So it's okay even if a man is a harasser or an abuser. Because we must protect the kind of life we have going on right now. What's happened has happened, right? Why? Why is whole another person's life now? And I think changing that is a big part of the protest. I agree. Um, also, a lot of people don't understand, you know, not just like tangible career aspects, an emotional effect or like emotional, um, emotionally a person has to suffer through when they have been a victim of a sexual assault. Like, yeah. Um. Okay, so. Yeah. On the next question. So we talked about how awareness can help because not everybody have the privilege to access information and if somebody is called out yeah it's our duty that we try and educate people first that how consent works how you cracking a rape joke is wrong etc but we have seen uh, when hashtag me too movement happened in a lot of circles like debating circuit and mun circuit of delhi which i'm aware of these people were already actively engaged in discourse knew about how privacy works knew about what even consent like explicitly constitutes of uh, and uh, how like what is feminism and how even like power dynamics works and how they need to be more cautious etc etc but despite knowing all of that and even championing for this or you know actively advocating uh, women rights these people despite that few of them actually came out to be sexual uh, assaulters so also it's pretty saddening to know that like more than 90% of the times we the person knows who the assaulter is uh, and it's and it's also uh, shocking that you know some assaulter can be somebody who's literally like knows us and you know sitting and standing with us and we talk to every day why do you think despite awareness a lot of people like debaters and emuners in this circle chose to indulge in assaulting someone and what do you think is a redressal or reformative mechanism given they already have reached that awareness stage uh, when it came to educating in some form Uh, when it comes to, I think, the redressal mechanism or the reformative mechanism, 
I think that all of these NUIs based on the competition. One topic is that largely student led and student open. There's very little intervention in terms of institutions or otherwise. Now colleges are supposed to have internal complaints, uh, like committees for sexual harassment reports mm-hmm. or sexual assault reports. I think, I mean, I mean, everyone do have all these portfolios, right? Like, run the Secretary General of Finance or Public Relations. Yes, yes. All of these competitions and these circuits, they also require an immediate regression mechanism. So you have somebody that's just handling like an internal complaint committee relating to this, like whichever event is being organized. Like that should be something that that should be built into these circuits. Every debate competition should have this one person where you know that, okay, something goes wrong, so this person I contact, I know that then onwards these are the steps that should be taken. And that's not something we you know, on a very big scale in college level competitions of any sort, right? Nobody talks about assault or harassment in the beginning when you have to well, there should be there should be there should be a very clear, very explicit mechanism of getting help in case something happens to you. So that the harassers also know that yes, okay, there are ways for people to speak up here because otherwise everyone you know, the base of all of these That's true because, um, no, but in debating circuits, it's pretty much evolved before MUN circuit because we had this equity committees and equity officers, which were against students, but somebody who had not been involved in debating circuit because then that bias is supposed to come in. But again, it's a student-based activity. 
intervention has been limited uh, a, a certain institution has banned people for like not coming there because they or like has banned certain people when somebody called out or they had banned because uh, an equity was filed against somebody but these people still can actively debate and yeah again part dynamics i agree somebody who has debated or been in circuit for 5 years if you say call out now you can sure ban them in future but they generally don't think they have anything at stake so they don't get to that phase that any sort of consequences and it continues because they are like we have done it for 5 years been in 3 years now they are graduating or like going ahead with their lives or whatever so yeah that that that's something sad that intervention is limited even if it is and they don't face any sort of consequences even if they do it's limited pretty much question so this is long standing debate i would say that what is the best term to use for someone who has gone through a sexual harassment experience victim or survivor and yeah what is the technically appropriate word as well and who do you think gets to decide like what should we be using so this is a very loaded question and i would say that the best report on time magazine which in which the woman she talks about is the most survivor as a sexual assault as somebody who went about sexual assault now uh, she personally she wrote about how she suffered towards victim because what happened to her was not her fault she had no agency in it she did not choose to go through this and she did not choose to survive it she merely did it and in the simplest sense of the word she was a victim of a crime and she would like to say that as it is she does not want to make her experience any more or any less than what it was and she would just like to be called a victim because that is how it is but she also spoke about how even as an assault survivor she is not entitled to speak as a other assault survivor and there are other assault survivors that would rather use the word survivor just as a victim a sense of agency or control it uh, allows them to Of course, there are larger, there is a larger politics of 
language and of language and how how that affects people in certain life but there is a certain negative connotation or associated with victim there is also certain negative connotation associated with survivor because a lot of times you have this survivor glorification kind of thing like yes this thing that where you call rape survivors or victims you know india's daughter or even of victims right and also i agree and also i think we as society like when we talk about victim we shouldn't really talk in the sense of pity always it's just like it should be also taken as somewhat technical word that yes this is what they had gone through or this yeah they had to experience this and not something that is you know we attach pity to it or all of that so that was probably the reason people started to choose survivor so yeah anybody we they should be able to reclaim the word victim or survivor given how they wish to and not attach any connotation yeah. to it i i i agree to that definitely and, and you you're absolutely right about the pity part of it i think it's just the most important thing is to reclaim how we look at people as a vulnerable event and to not just keep this as a central event that has defined them or their life that is not all that we also a question similar to this how do you think media coverage of news related to sexual assault affects society's perception of the people of the assaulters of the victims in general and if you would like to change any propose if you would like to propose any changes in the same so what do you think they would be to make the media coverage better or more sensitive or anything
there are a lot of times in which coverage is not just in terms of this active or passive voice, but also in terms of the kind of reporting that goes down. Like there was a very problematic time to send in a report a couple of years ago where the key points that they highlighted first were that the woman was beaten, that she was out with her friends, the kind of clothes she was wearing. And, and that's horrible because again, it places the owner's side back onto the person that's on the other side. This is not how it should be. So by reframing how we talk about these events, we also reframe how the public sees these events, right? Are they seeing, are they seeing this simply as the fault of whoever went through it or are they seeing this as the fault of the person that perpetrated the crime? And is it, are these reports still a part of race culture or are they, you know, some sort of counter-movement against race culture that are giving agency to the people, people involved in this? So I think that I would really propose that like most outlets have this sort of sensitivity filter that they highlight the things that are important, the where, when, why, how of the incident rather than the where, when, why, how of the victim of that circumstance. I think that would be just change the message because otherwise the usual discourse around the scene also tends to go along the lines of, you know, this is not you know, take appropriate measures, why would she think and that again makes it this sort of a thing where you're saying that okay, you deserve to be raped because you did not take XYZ measures. Or it's in fact that's also really problematic because it makes sure that you always want some other person to be more unsafe than you are, right? If if you are wearing good jeans to ensure that you don't attract attention because it's trying to make sure that somebody somebody else attracts attention because they're wearing less clothes or somebody is drunker than you and that that is that is also very of trigger warnings uh, when we talk about sensitive content related to sexual assault? So, according to the statistics for India, about 1 in 4 women are there. And this is when about 80% of cases in India are actually not reported. Right? This is according to NCRB data. So, this basically means that there are a lot of out there that have undergone sexual assault or harassment or or incidents of this sort. I think it makes it very really important to have to go one step because you don't know what the person going through certain content might have been through in the past. You don't know what experiences they're bringing to the table. Uh, you might not be triggered by a certain piece of news or information or you may you may have gone through something but you may not respond the same way that somebody else might, right? Cannot, you know, with assurance say that something is going to incite certain feelings. So I think it's very good to be sensitive and whatever content is put out should have the warning first and then have the person speaking because the content producer doesn't do anything doing that. You still have a discourse about a person or rape, all of these problems definitely. 
So can you, you know, put some light on how we should mention trigger warnings like usually? So sometimes it's said like to put it in red color because that's usually um, something that catches attention or you're more likely to pay attention than to the image first and then but at first you would pay attention to the red color and then to the image probably. The use of colors, the use of bold font, definitely centrally placing the warning. The important thing is that the person that the person should see and that they should not miss it and ask again okay so um yeah i have this one more question for you um how would you explain feminism to a 12 year old kid so in the simplest sense of the word word feminism is to believe that all genders are equal and uh, to a 12 year old that would, that would be the first thing that i would say and i would say that feminism as a movement is just a movement which makes the world more gender plus to make it more inclusive and more egalitarian and i would say that it's not about taking men or people that are different from you rather it's about finding the space to make sure that people that have historically suffered some sort of inequality are brought up to the same okay then um also again very i think common question I was also asked then, why not equalist, like, and why feminism specifically? I think that uh, the whole feminism is a basically point in this case because 
female has authority in support of brands of gender disparity. So the movement is more about bringing women to the same station or the same levels of opportunity that men enjoy, which does not mean that the movement exists from brands equal or beyond the binary, or that it does not acknowledge the effects of masculinity or other effects of the patriarchy on different sections of society. I think so long feminism is just to encapsulate the transfer there are more sides to be taken for women than for anybody else. But it doesn't engage from the rest of the Okay. Um so you know a lot of feminists agree on certain principles like quality but uh, if we see around somewhere all of us have our own versions of feminism that we practice or prefer like for example uh, when i was interviewing ankita chavla we had this discussion like when uh, when a woman achieves something uh, i would preferably say that a woman ceo uh, has taken over or you know woman leader has been elected but somebody else believes that like that we shouldn't use or, you know specifically highlight the word women because even as Sheryl Sandberg says, we say today that they are women leaders, but in future, they will be only leaders. Or Now, this is again two different versions of how people want women to be perceived. Or in other instance, for example, uh, like two different feminists might disagree on one believing in affirmative action uh, in case like uh, there should be reservation for women in places which are male-dominated, say in IMs, but in the other cases, another person might think that that shouldn't be the case. If given women had like equal access to resources and education, the best bet for women to actually prove their competence is to, you know, compete in a very fair manner and not have those sort of reservations. So we all have like somewhat differences and different versions. Given that, how do you think, uh, given that, whom do you think gets to be the torchbearer of these feminist idols and uh, how do you think we can also encourage more discussion and instead of dividing over these, you know, difference of opinions, but be united because that just, you know, um, I think strengthens the movement. So, uh, one of my favorite quotes related to that, if I am a watchman, she's been very active as a feminist and she spoke about this and she said that, you know, feminism doesn't stick to the other women of the head with, right? It's not an excuse to break down the that are problematic, but there are social plans that are that 
somebody find this imperfect they should probably join in the conversation and just see like discuss and debate yeah, and, and see and how it can evolve yeah, exactly. to be it's better it's a little thing right right like as a like in our This is also one of the trending questions in the sense recently Rishi Kapoor passed away and also, you know, there were a lot of things that surfaced like how he was also one of the, you know, somebody who has indulged in domestic violence and been really hostile when he said fuck you bitch to like a 16 year old girl and also when Stanley passed away again, there were a lot, lot of sexual assault uh, you know, that he ha- there were a lot of accusations against him as well that he has indulged in sexual assault. So when someone passes away, there there again two sort of sides arise that um that we should that you know on at least when you know somebody passes away, we should let them die in peace and probably uh, they are immortalized and they should be remembered in positive light. But on the other hand, there are also people who want to express their discomfort or remember them for their discomfort and need their own space. So how do you think uh, when somebody who's who has, you know, contributed to society in a manner in their field and is also somebody who has indulged in sexual assaults and accused of them, 
so how should we probably remember them and yeah this whole debate mainly Also, are setting this precedence which already exists that if you are somebody who has achieved 
great in your field you can get away with things similarly when we talked about this debating mu and circuit thing given you have been this you know really reputed muner and you are like best in your field or like this really you know top field debater in this field you have so many achievements that doesn't mean like you get to get away with stuff and yeah sure we well we have idolized them and we do acknowledge their greatness but that ne- never should be something that make you know that somebody has to go through discomfort and that that's also i think power dynamics then come in place when people start overlooking and not acknowledge the reality like both the good and the bad um that's an element that comes up certain things either right like i should that's a sort of an end of the questions i had we'll now move on to a rapid fire round and yeah here i begin one person who has been your inspiration so i don't have a particular what are your, what is your next year plan and your probably where do you see yourself in 5 years so have one of really great pages on instagram um i for media what was the instagram handle yeah dear mr media yeah dear mr dear media it, it's it's really i mean i really love watching the videos and it again is curated on gen z content and how uh, uh, related to movies and something all of us and we involved with dear mr media because you know highlight like media that one movie recommendation you have 
I would say Little Women, the one that came out in 2019, is absolutely fantastic. I loved the book when I was growing up, and Greta Gorwitz is just not such an incredible job in this one's first time to be relevant and believable, and it actually has been good this year. Okay, yeah, it's out on Prime, and I'm here to watch. Um, if you could swap your life with one person for a day, who would that lucky person be? Uh, I kind of like my life because I would What's your dream career? I think it's journalist you answered. Yeah, it, it, it's just what I'm doing right now, working with the media, working in social entrepreneurship and I would like I would like to continue doing this and just because I just want the scale to keep getting bigger every year. Best advice you have got from someone? I don't think I've ever been kind of advice and also that I think I tend to, I don't know, kind of rely on my own judgment more than anything else. But uh, I'd say it would also be my best friend encouraging me a couple of years ago to really stand up for myself and to vocally own up to my work and be more assertive because that's something I used to shy away from. And I've, I've really started to implement that and it just changed my life definitely. And I also feel when it comes to being a sort of something, I, I, I have struggled for a very long. So when I read this book, Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, it's actually true. It's because when women be a sort of, they're seen as, you know, something bossy. And it's also in society's perception, it's considered that you won't be liked and you're too authoritative, etc. But that's also something we won't do with men very easily. And there was also this case study of um, Harvard and Hildy where they just keep everything same but they just change the name of Howard to Healthy and how people start viewing that same person as someone who's bossy but when that person was men and being assertive then they were like okay so that's how you know positions of authority are supposed to be so, it's, so yeah, yeah then I realized all of these leadership roles or you know assertion as just being this masculine and a lot of times women in power actually have to make themselves seem assertive like not just Thatcher or Indra Gandhi present themselves as having male attributes for them to be taken seriously and I for the longest time in my life that's something I used to do like I, I was very aggressive because I thought that if I come across as weak or you know so called womanly then I would be stereotyped or not seriously and it took me some time to find the right mix and to assert where I want to assert and to back up where I want to back up and just to be myself when it comes to my work that's amazing because yes it's something i think all of us go through at some point in time that a certain thing like most of us have might have gone through being women but i don't it wasn't really talked around me ever it's only when i read that book i actually realized okay this is what has been happening with me <laughs> at that time not for my best friend i think i i wouldn't have the one to like speak up and say that no this is decided right and why does it for this and a lot of women just even have just been overshadowed because of this 
and because of societal structure not allowing us to see what we've done. If you uh, if you ever write in autobiography or have in biography, what would you title it? Like for now, you can think of. <laughs> I think I probably decided it learning to live with yourself because that's been my journey mostly learning what works for me, how do I make myself better, that translates into how into my work and my achievements. So because like I struggle with OCD, I have to do OCD spectrum disorders. So. A lot of my journey has been about understanding my own mind and what works for me, and the the fact that I'm really, really different from everybody else around me. But that that is a necessarily bad. So yeah, I think that's what I would like to call it. Okay. Um. So you have traveled a lot, from what I figured out from your Instagram page. If you had to decide in one country, which one it would be? Um. One thing that I figured out while traveling is that you could take me absolutely anywhere in the world, and I would love it. I have literally never traveled anywhere and not fallen in love with that country or that place. And I think there's something to be said of, of every place. And that's one of the reasons that I actually wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I never want to settle in one place. I always want to keep traveling. I love moving from one place to the next. I Love not knowing where my next destination is going to be, and I think that's how I want to live my life: just hopping from one place to the other. You also follow this. This I, I think I call this sort of nomad culture, where you have or that nomad mindset. Do you also follow it in your real life, like where you um, are always exploring things and not knowing where you will go next, but just like jumping on or hopping on opportunities and then exploring it. Or in general, do you also follow this sort of mindset in your real life? I do tend to jump at a lot of opportunities because opportunities they often tend to come at in opportune moments, you know. And I plan a lot. I definitely plan my life down to the tee. There are so many things on my schedule all the time, but I also I also ensure that every single time there's an opportunity to retire, so I'm right at it. And every one, like every two or three months, I need to learn to do something. Else. So you know, starting a career helps with one thing. Then, You know, leading an international program was another. Then I started modeling because I was right from what I had been previously doing. Then I did a digital campaign, or you know, traveling to another country. All of those things, I think, I always want something to push my boundaries, and I always want to be hopping and learning and you know, doing all of these things. And I don't think I'll ever just do one job. Like right now, for the girl, I'm a graduate help. I have college and stuff. I love doing art. I love doing modeling, and I think I I, I do like that kind of lifestyle where there are always different things going on, and I jump into one to the next. I can't. I don't think I can ever do like the same job every day or just live in the same place every day. That's amazing. Also, something that helped me was saying yes to a lot of different things. So that's how, in retrospect, I realized this is fun. Like just saying yes to new things and new opportunities. It actually shaped me a lot as well. Very apprehensive, and I used to hesitate so much, and I still hesitate. So it's not like I stopped hesitating; it's just that I hesitate after I say yes. I stopped into it, and then I say, you know what? I learned. Like I, I might not get it, sure, but you know, let's give it a shot. Why not? That's how you know if you're good at something or not. That 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 that's great because yeah, I mean, a lot of us grow complacent, and yeah, also because of our hesitation. So yeah, learning to say yes can be one of the best things. Um. 
yeah, one regret you have in your life in retrospect, you think. Or something you would have done better in retrospect, maybe that sounds better, but What annoys you most in the world? Lack of moral responsibility. It, it just upsets me the most. Like seeing people be so socially irresponsible or just caring about themselves. That, that's really a big turn off for me and anybody's personality. Um, okay. I, I think this also comes with uh, what I have observed when I have got upset with somebody who has been socially irresponsible around me, one person being so much aware and introspecting, other person not even thinking or not even caring to be aware or not introspecting much. So so I think if more people introspect, this world would be a better place. Because <laughs> so many people become conscious. A lot of people just like do, 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 do things and they're only so much aware of themselves. Like, they and that's all they care people have about how feminists are so if there was one myth you had to break about feminists uh, what would it be 
ിറ്റിവിറ്റി <laughs> a lot of it um three things on your bucket list <laughs> if you need fun or if you would like to share three things on my bucket list uh, in general for my life yeah in general for 2020 i mean i said for year but whatever yeah you can answer any of that in 2020 if you feel hopeful um they can be completed or three goals ഫോർ <laughs> 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 
Thank you so much Simran for taking out the time to be a part of our podcast project. We had a lot of fun shooting this episode with you and all the best for future. We are really proud of all the work that you're doing.